Greetings, and welcome to Talking Trek to You, where an expert and a noob boldly go through Star Trek episode by episode. My name is JG McQuarrie, and I'm here with my co-host, Kev Koser. Say hi, Kev. Hi. How are you doing this week? Well, my parents are in town, and they're for a big diplomatic mission, so it's very stressful here. <laughs> <laughs> that, that does sound like it would put any son under pressure. But, uh, of course, we have to manage to negotiate our way through any kind of diplomatic crisis, and we cannot possibly do it alone. So, uh, welcome to the podcast, Jack. Hey, good morning. Good morning, afternoon, yeah. evening. How are you doing? I am doing well, and I realize that it is not morning for you. <laughs> but yeah, I'm no, I'm, with I'm glass doing of wine, great. So, <laughs> perfect. I uh, yeah, I've had a busy week, but um, I'm excited to be uh, doing some more podcast stuff. Uh, Kev was kind enough to have me on Total Massacre, and I had a great time. So I'm really looking forward to this. Fantastic. Well, it's lovely to have you on board. Um, as we always do when we have a new guest in the podcast, we like to ask them what their history with Star Trek is and what the show means to them. So uh, that, what's your history with the show and what, what does it mean to you? <laughs> so I, uh, I came to Star Trek kind of in a slightly roundabout manner, which is that um, when I was a kid, uh, one of my primary sources of discovery was... Uh, uh, books of movie capsule reviews oh. and I would just voraciously read those and you know just see anything that was deemed appropriate that I could uh, that I was interested in and uh, this led me to st I, I skipped motion picture and I went straight to Wrath of Khan and I enjoyed the Trek movies especially um, Wrath of Khan and Undiscovered Country as a kid um, I was really big into those. Uh, my dad was a Shakespeare professor, so uh, Christopher Plummer, <laughs> oh, <laughs> quoting wow. Shakespeare as as he bedevils Kirk, uh, was very, very, very appealing to me. Um, so I, I watched the movies first. Um, I know that's a bit ass backwards, but um, uh, I came to the show later, especially because um, my dear friend Carl Garcia, who uh, is actually how I met Kev through him, um he is one of the like biggest authorities on trek i know you've had him on um and i watched a bunch of tos with him um when i was young uh we also used to spend some time in england uh again for my parents work um and back then there were i was indeed experiencing the situation of having five channels to work with so uh as a result i ended up watching a bunch of random tng episodes as a kid as well so I've, I would estimate that I've seen about two-thirds of the TOS episodes, um, a smattering of uh, uh, TNG, and um, I also um, I remember also seeing First Contact in theaters as a kid, just because, you know, it was a big sci-fi movie, and yeah, I got really amped up on that. I, uh, I just, I like the world. Uh, I'm not a completionist. I kind of dip in and out and cherry pick, um, which I know is... <laughs> sacrilege <laughs> to a lot of people um but uh yeah i just i think it's a really great um it's a just a great conception of um a sci-fi world and the way the stories address problem solving in particular has always really appealed to me as somebody who writes um the way it's just you know problem solution solution begets other problem etc um the way that tends to be a in effect in some of the best episodes so yeah i think it's a a, a great piece of um it's a, just a great piece of culture honestly i think star trek is is wonderful excellent thank you very much yeah it's it's always it's always really interesting to hear where people come from with the show um but yeah it's, it sounds like uh it sounds like you've got more than enough experience to uh to cover everything that we need to cover here so i think without further ado we can probably move on and um kev if you would care to give us a usual summary all right uh and journey to babel uh as alluded to mark spock's parents um, Sarek and Amanda arrive on the Enterprise uh, in advance of a big sort of like conference, I guess. I, it, conference is the best word to use for it. But yeah, they're discussing the admission of a planet with valuable minds into the Federation. Um, at that conference, ambassadors start turning up dead. One of them attacks Kirk. There's a lot of drama. And in the midst of that drama, also Spock's father 
Sarek, uh, has a heart condition that requires blood transfusions and medical, like Spock to be involved in the medical process of reviving him. Uh, there is a problem when after Kirk is stabbed, Spock has to halt the medical procedure in order to take command of the ship in a very stubborn way. Uh, of course, he and his father have been conflicting this whole time because of their different views on things. Um, but then Kirk manages to summon up enough resolve to take command back from Spock so he can finish the procedure. And during all this, they also discover that the one of the Andorian ambassadors is actually an Orion in disguise. And that ship, the Orion ship starts tailing them and firing at them. But once the whole thing unravels, the ship at, blows up and the, the secret Orion dies. And there we go, it's done and dusted. And uh, they are able to fix Sarek as well. Fantastic. Thank you very much. Uh, well, let's start off with general impressions. Uh, Jack, you're a guest, so why don't you go first? How did you find this one? Oh, I, I enjoyed it very much. It seems like a quintessential episode to me on a lot of levels. Obviously, it's really central to the lore and Spock's character. Um, I love Mark Lennard. Um, <clears throat> I, his first appearance as the um, uh, Romulan commander in Balance of Terror. Um, that's just one of my absolute all-time favorite Trek episodes. Generally, the more submarine battle-y <laughs> we're getting on the show, uh, the the more I, I sort of lean forward in my seat. Um, I'm, si- I'm sitting currently with a few feet away from a, a giant Wrath of Khan poster. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, yeah, I, I think it's great. I really just enjoy the character aspect. And just in general, like a good twinning of character and plot in this episode, I found. Excellent. Thanks very much. And uh, Kev, how did you find it? Oh, yeah, I I love this one. Um, I think it is like a perfect blend. Maybe not a perfect blend of soap opera and sort of intrigue, because the intrigue part is a little flatter, but the soap opera stuff is like so good. And I don't say soap opera dismissively. I love that like these family dynamics are coming to play for Spock. I think Mark Lennard and Jane Wyatt are spectacular as his parents. I think they're such, like, these are characters I've seen different incarnations of already, like, several different times. Yeah, right. To see the origin, it's like, oh, it was all there. These are all such fully formed characters and dynamics. And it's so interesting. It's like getting the introductions for um, both, like, this whole history for Spock and also for two very major Star Trek species. It was just very interesting um yeah this adds so much to star trek both just on like a mythology level but also on just like a human character level and i yeah it's it's wonderful for that yeah i think it's an interesting one because i I think on paper it's one of those episodes that could sound a bit dull like if you're scrolling through netflix or whatever and you come across it and uh there's a conference and then some family drama happens at you like it doesn't sound like the most riveting description in the world uh but we're blessed with uh you know a a frankly amazing cast who really do make the most of it and of course dc fontana who's just such a a fantastic character writer there are a few writers in star trek who are able to dive into uh, the characters, particularly the regulars, with such precision, I think. And even though, obviously, the main focus of this episode is on on Spock and Sarek, and their, their kind of feud and the reconciliation of that. But she does so well writing for McCoy as well. Like in, in some ways, this is actually almost mm. like the most McCoy action we've seen. He's doing his job. He's competent. He gets on with stuff. Like, he isn't, up, you know, he isn't, upskilled by someone else stepping in and going oh actually doctor here's the way that you can solve everything right um and he gets the last word like it's all the mccoy stuff is just absolute gold here oh yeah i mean let's just since you brought it up and it's gonna be a quick thing i the fourth wall break at the end of the episode is really funny (laughs) like (laughs) and and a fourth wall break is something that's very tricky like you're walking a fine line when you're doing that but i feel like i had a great time with him being like finally these people have shut up (laughs) <laughs> i mean mccoy is just such a delight as a character i find that uh i think you can get away with it because sheerly yeah. uh, on the sheer basis of how endearing to the audience that character has become over the years uh, or over the you know the season and a half of uh of trek 
Yeah, it's very it's very well earned, and you can see how much DeForest Kelly is just loving the opportunity. Yes. Like the second he's given the stuff to do, like he just digs in. Like he's very good at yeah. sort of sort of being a, a, a sort of like the third of the Kirk Spock McCoy trilogy. But like here, he's really kind of up front, and you can just see the way that Kelly runs with it. It's it's a joy to watch. Yeah, and the the more like dramatic material he sinks his teeth into so well, also. Um, like oh, I always being... I love what, when he gets serious. Oh yeah, just in in any context, but like it's always great to see him like bring in a note of real gravitas and experience. You know, like mm-hmm. playing with his age and in, in, in a way that I find effective. Yeah, like he's the big driver of the Spock and Sarek. You need to reconcile to save his life, kind of stuff. Yeah, and absolutely. Like yeah, it, it's all there. Like with Kelly's performance, he is so um, like just a rock solid in like delivering these sort of dramatic proclamations of like Spock being like, Oh, that's important. I command the bridge. It's not as more important than your father's life. Like that sort of stuff is so good. Uh, I would agree that the uh, intrigue and uh, action aspect is just a touch flatter. I would agree with you, Kev, but I also think that it does a good job of creating an atmosphere of <clears throat> heightened tension oh, and yeah. increased stakes so that the family stuff becomes even more urgent. And I think that one epi- one side of the script serves the other well in that way. And as you said, DC Fontana just has such a strong handle on character that um, having these external pressures uh, just really adds uh, an additional... Um, layer of intensity that's appreciated i think it's also the thing that stops like we've used the term soap opera a couple of things but i think one of the things that stops this episode just becoming a soap opera where you know an estranged father and son make up is is that is that skillful way in which um you know we have uh like the blood transfusion we have spock uh unable to uh relinquish command because of his you know starfleet commitments all that kind of stuff. So the reconciliation does come out of the action of the episode. So it's not just two people either expositing at each other going, oh, well, when I did this, you were very upset. Yes, I was very upset. And then like all those kind of very soapy beats, it it does come from the drama of the episode. So the characters are able to, you know, express what it is that's led to the, the this estrangement without it just being here comes the info dump and it's really it's really skillfully delivered it's a, it's a great turn from from dc fontana and i really do think it stops it just becoming like a soap opera agreed oh yeah like even if that the the thrillers elements of the episode are flatter like you said jack i think that's the right way to do it. it's still like very necessary and it oh 100 percent in any other Star Trek episode, like just if it was just the throws up without the element of Spock's parents, it would still be a solid episode. Yep. Like, yeah, it's it's just it's just little pills in comparison. It's all the great yeah, stuff sure. happening with the character drama. Uh something that has <laughs> I mean, I'm not trying to like riff, but right. Spock's mom being named Amanda has always been mildly hilarious to me. I know that she's human, of right. course. But it just sort of almost seems like, you know, if if this was 20 years later, Spock's mom being named Megan or something. <laughs> no. Like just like a maybe a touch too casual. <laughs> I don't know. I, 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 mean, I hear you because the other the other humans on this show are named like, I mean, James, but James Tiberius. And yeah, like, right. Exactly. There's a little bit more sauce. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I had that problem. So this is a slight diversion, but I had that problem with. um Star Trek Picard, because one of the characters is called Agnes Durati, and Agnes seems like such a prosaic name for a character (laughs) in Star Trek. People in Star Trek aren't called Agnes. That's not a thing. So I mean, the character was bad enough, but that made it extra difficult to try and take seriously. Yeah, like I'm just just running through names ahead, and it's like I mean, you've got Hikari Sulu and Tan Chekhov, um, like Uhura, just the last name, at least in the TOS, but like all of these are like. Well, is it, I believe it's Pavel Chekhov. I was like, he, he doesn't have the exact same name as the player. Oh, I guess. oh my God, that's, I'm doing a bad. <laughs> no, that's okay. On my part. But yes, you're right, Pavel Chekhov. Like, like even Montgomery Scott, which is probably the most like. Um, I mean, I guess there's a little bit of also like cultural stuff going on with the other names, but like, I don't know, none of them are feel as plain as Amanda. There's a little bit Not, of. Yeah, sauce yeah for sure. To all of them. 
Montgomery Scott feels like it could have come out of like a Horatio Hornblower or a right. um, you know or a, a, a Maturin and uh, Aubrey novel. You know, yeah, it feels right. feels right for a sort of naval kind of. Uh, yeah, so that, that's what I'm getting. At. Isn't naval, but it's it's kind of has that feel to it. Although, it's, although it's Montgomery Scott post. is very much so not appearing in this film in this episode. Yeah, <laughs> he absolutely is. Hand command over to Scotty, who's not in this. <laughs> Scotty, wonder... you, just, you just missed him. He just left. <laughs> <laughs> I, just to maybe put a button on the name thing, I wonder if it's like you need old names or future sounding names on Star Trek. You just can't go in the middle. You can't go with contemporary. I think, I think you may have cracked it. Yeah. Um, but yes, uh, we, we do get, so no Scott this episode, um, but we do get some good like Uhura and Chekhov stuff. Uh, mm-hmm. They're, they're always reliable. Uh, I'm just trying to see what else, like, little things we can take off before getting to the meat of it, I guess. It is nice to but see yeah. Uhura get, like, a decent yeah. role. Like, there is a fair amount of, kind of, hailing frequencies open, but it's not all that. Um, and and there's, there's a lovely... There's a tiny little bit of, like, non-verbal acting between Nichelle Nichols and uh, William Shatner when Kirk comes back to the bridge after he's, like, pretending to be fine so that Spock will, right. you know, go away. Yeah. And, and she kind of sits up as if to go, oh, Captain, you're better. And, and, and Shatner just very quietly raises his hand, just, like, an inch to go, no. And then she kind of... And it's just... It's over in, like, half a second. But, it, but from both characters and from both actors, it's such a lovely little moment. I think when you have an ensemble like this you know, who've been working together for a while, you start to see those great little just behavioral stuff cropping Mm up. Um, Yeah, absolutely. I mean, she's, she's just wonderful as always. And I could always use more Uhura. Um, But yeah, it's, it's just nice to see. It's nice that she's involved. Oh yeah. That's such a good moment. I think this is also a great transition to talking about one of our usual topics on this podcast, how great William Shatner is on this show, (laughs) specifically on this show. But um, yes, I, he, like again, even though he's definitely second string to Spock in this episode, he's like all all the stuff with the faking recovering from the injury and just the acting of the how the injury's taking its toll on him. All of that stuff is so good. Oh yeah, I'm I, I'm always a huge fan of injured slash poisoned slash whatever Kirk mm-hmm. <laughs> because that always really gives him an opportunity to really put it in his body in a cool way. I mean, oh, yeah. I grew up on the cusp of Gen X, and Shatner was an absolute punchline my entire upbringing. But I I never agreed with that take. I always thought he's got a specific yeah. style. It, we're doing a space show with color-coded costumes. You know, it's like, I don't think flat naturalism would be the way to go with it. I think you need a degree of that sort of pumped-up Odysseus thing that he brings to the table. And, you know, I when something is parodied, to me, that usually means that something was notable enough or recognizable enough to merit being parodied yes. so that people recognize uh when uh you know something like i don't know the exorcist was parodied so heavily but it because it's iconic you know yeah it, i feel the same way about shatter i totally agree i think i mean this is a recurring refrain on the show but like he's so locked into exactly what the tone of the show is most of the time and is fully delivering what needs what is asked of him and like just just the commitment he brings to it is so impactful. And even commitment, though he can think... Yeah. Even though he can go big, he he does like he does get underrated for playing the smaller moments too. Like like we just said the gesture to Uhura. He can play like subtle and like have things like the injury like affect his performance in ways that are not like he's not riding on the ground screaming the entire time. He is like carrying it with an ability and then trying to mask it. That, that is all like intricate acting. But then he also knows when to pull out the long dramatic pauses and to go big and to really lean into it too when it's appropriate. Absolutely. I mean, I think commitment is exactly the right word. I think he's, he's, he's all in because I mean, I think you'd have to be a dummy to not get those scripts and look at that character and realize like, Oh, this is a great character. Yes. (laughs) Like this uh, truly, you know, even on the page, I would assume like it is just, a great iconic character. I think the other thing about this episode is, is that particularly uh, in relation to the last sort of few episodes that we've watched, like uh, Catspaw and I'm Mud, particularly, like he's not 
putting in as much effort as he sometimes did, but there are also noticeably kind of weaker scripts. Um, whereas this one, you can really see that he's taking the opportunity. Like, there's a lot of really good meaty Kirk material in this episode, and you can see that he's rising to that kind of challenge and, and really enjoying having the opportunity to kind of explore around what it is he can do with the character. That Again, that moment when he comes back to the bridge and Kirk is kind of sort of full... Uh, relaxed and cheerful and it's like okay Spock uh, off, off you go for your surgery <laughs> and like it's such a good piece of acting because you can see, we know and of course you can see in the performance that he's kind of he's bluffing his way through it he's hoping he can stay on his feet long enough for Spock to bugger off to the turbo lift um, and he manages it but it's such a good piece of acting because it it's treading that line between well we know what he's like when he's relaxed and congenial um, but he's just turned it up by like half a point so we know that there's artifice in it but spot but not enough that it would clue spock in to give the game away it's such a it's such a lovely little moment and and shatner absolutely lands it oh yeah it's they have such a dynamic shatner and nimoy at this point like they're so in sync as performers and as the characters of course where it is just like they can play off each other forever yeah, that's one thing I love about getting deep enough into a series where you just like really, really know the characters and the actors really, really know the characters. And there's just like a sense of trust in like the personalities and having that lead you where you want to go. Um, and there's just so much to be built on at this point. Like we've seen them go through so much together. Yeah, I just I don't know. I love them. They're my guys. <laughs> Yeah, I mean it's 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 hard to argue with that, but you know we've 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 talked about Shatner, we've talked about Kelly. I mean we have to talk about oh, Lemoyne, yes. right? We have like, we have to talk about him now. So um, yeah, he's all right. It's <laughs> 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 a solid performance. He's, he's, he seems pretty locked in. Right? Yeah, oh my god. Yes, yeah, nothing nothing to write home about. No, of course he's spectacular. You know, yeah. he's, what a performance, especially especially like in the first third. I was gonna say where he's being really when, cold when, like just amazing. when um Sarek and amanda first arrive i mean just the way he's holding himself as they mm-hmm. enter and it, it's just it's remarkable uh because you're really seeing so he's got it's it's there's layers he's got he's got the vulcan sort of impassivity but you're also mm-hmm. just you're seeing this like almost adolescent rage under the surface oh. of that that yeah. is so powerful and so palpable and the sort of tension between his refusal to express his emotions and how high we know those emotions to be running is just, it's magical. It rocks. Yeah. The way he's, we, the whole Vulcan persona is so well-defined at this point. We can tell he's leaning further into it in order yes, to mask. Right. Yep. Like the emotions at play. Yeah. That it's just such a, like, I mean, I was commending William Shatner's subtlety, but it's like it blew out of the water by Leonard Nimoy's subtlety. He's such a reserved, quiet actor who like can play all these layers all the time. I mean, it's a it's a demanding role, you know. Yeah, being the like big dick captain is is more straightforward right. uh, than you know somebody who is this character of a of a mixed species background who has this massive cultural weight on his shoulders who is constantly sort of fighting this internal battle like there is so much going on with spock and nimoy is you know he's more than up to it yeah it's an amazing turn from him and the 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 even that just the, the visible irritation he has with Kirk when Kirk has his kind of like early clumsy attempts to sort of like bridge the gap, like the scene in engineering, oh, come and explain the computers to them uh, and all that kind of stuff. And like, you can, you can just see how annoyed he is by the whole thing having to do, but of course nothing gets through. Um, it is just a, an amazing performance and his, his reluctance to, give up command later in the episode again it's just it's played so straight yeah. and 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 all those kind of variegations within in like a tiny sort of range but it, it it it's a small amount but it gives so much um and it really is that thing of still waters run deep you know we we only get tiny little moments but the tiny moments we get imply so much um and i think one of the interesting things i think about vulcan 
Um, this is true about a lot of um, sort of sci-fi conceits. Mm-hmm. Um, is that the more you look at it, the more you find out about it, kind of the less interesting it becomes. Like Gallifrey is a perfect oh, example yeah. in Doctor Who, right? The more we find out about Gallifrey, the less anybody could give two figgins about <laughs> it. But um, and, and kind of Vulcan is a little bit like that when we, when we had Spock as the sole representative. There was a huge amount implied. And we got to visit Vulcan once, um, you know, at the start of the season with a mock time. And that was great. Um, but we had this kind of split culture where we had all this kind of repressed emotion and the logic and all the rest of it. But it seemed very kind of sort of ritualistic. Yes, but also and, ritual and, combat. And very locked in. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. But it, but that kind of made it really interesting because, and that's something that kind of falls away from Vulcan now. It, it seemed sort of quasi kind of religious, I suppose, but it, uh, maybe maybe that's too strong. But it, it had all these kind of rituals and traditions mm. and, and this kind of thing. And, and it was all implied. And like, like the ritual um, combat, right. like, like that's not the product of a society that's logical no. and cold and, <laughs> it, and rational. It's a total contradiction, kind of but that's what's fascinating about it. Yeah, exactly. But here, they're just that all that's just kind of faded away. So we find out more about Vulcan here, but not really to its advantage. So it's just as well we've got Mark Leonard on hand right. to deliver like a, like a series best performance. Oh um, yeah. Am I wrong in thinking that the moment when Spock uh, and Amanda are talking, and Amanda talks about uh, him coming home from being bullied by the other children, am I wrong in thinking that that's basically? the direct inspiration for the scene in J.J. Um, uh, Abrams' 09 Trek. Oh, it has uh, to be. It has to be, right? I mean, oh, no, just like adap- we're adap- adapting that exact scene, yeah. Yeah. Yes, precisely. Yeah, it, it's the episode that makes you think less of J.J. Abrams' movie. It's like, oh, you just took this? <laughs> There's there's a um, number of things that make me think less of J.J. Abrams movies as time goes on. I yeah. do still I I do still very much like that 2009 Star Trek. I think it works. I do too. I think it fundamentally works in spite of a lot of things, but it fundamentally works. Yeah, but I yes. think we're on. I think we're on exactly the same page there. Yes. Um. But yeah, this is like I mean, speaking of like implications and just like hinting at things, like it doesn't. The main rift between Spock and Sarek is just that he joins Starfleet instead of the Vulcan Science Academy. And then so much goes unsaid. Like, that's kind of where they leave it. And you just pick up the pieces. It's like he's embracing more human than being more Vulcan. And there's so much, like, deep waters run there. It's like, because he picked a different college, they now hate each other. And so... No, I was about to... Yeah. I was about to say that seems so true to life in a way in terms yes. of like really, really serious familial schisms where one seemingly not that significant thing will become a stand in for like the entire larger sublimated conflict between these two people, you know, where it is something that's like, you didn't go to my alma mater. <laughs> right. So I've disowned you. It's like, well, okay, but it's not that simple. Clearly there is a ton not being said and a ton that you are not engaging with. And I mean, it's just fascinating. And I think, you know, just anybody who has parents at all, I feel couldn't help but be moved on some level by this episode. You know, oh, yeah. Just like any, whatever relationship, good or bad, or anything in between, it's just it. It's really there's just an essential uh, empathy and tenderness to the way that this is presented that I found really great. <laughs> Star Trek's Ladybird episode. <laughs> oh, oh, oh. <laughs> just Amanda just driving around the airport. <laughs> the, the the space airport. Yeah. Right, <laughs> right. Yes. Uh, it's interesting how quickly the the kind of the diplomatic side of things, the political side of things falls away as well. I mean, the whole point of Sarek being in the ship is meant to be that we're going to have this kind of, you know, this this planet, which is uh, going to join the Federation and they're going to vote on it. And so we get we get these little glimpses into kind of the internal structure of the of the world that's been created or the universe that's being created. Um, all that stuff falls away quite quickly so that the family drama can come forward. But I actually think that's very much to the benefit 
of the yes. episode because we don't have um, we don't have kind of like interminable like political discussions between two people we just don't care about, um, and that's that, that, that it, it's used kind of almost like a frontispiece to politics in this. Um, given that Star Trek can sometimes be a bit clumsy about politics, I think that's quite good. But I also it, the fact that it's just brief it is that thing about you know so much is implied by what we get so we get a little thing about a planet voting to join the federation mm. we get something about you know um you know it's not a done deal like some planets might have their own motivations for you know resisting this planet joining there's a third party involved because the the orions can like play both sides and make a profit from it like there's a lot of really interesting world building in that but we don't linger on it so it doesn't become boring and that's that's always the real threat with an episode like this like if you're going to do something which is oh it's 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 diplomats and then then a bad thing happens and a, like it can become really clunky but we get like a chunk of it maybe in the first quarter to a third i guess and then it just more or less falls away except for the occasional revisit to that absolutely delicious looking buffet <laughs> um, and yeah mm, tasty uh, but I, I really like that about the episode yeah. it's it, it's it's balanced well enough that we get insight into the world but we don't linger yes. so it becomes tedious. it's a framework and we don't get into the weeds on the politics stuff it's, a, it's just an understandable concept it makes sense and is presented and we don't we don't get hung up on it we know just enough about the sort of Corridan crisis like they have valuable resources they want to profit on it and not have them be part of this socialist utopia where it's all gonna be free <laughs> and that's just enough for like laying the groundwork of all the stories um i think not to harp on this again but that is kind of why the action thrust episode is a little flatter is because it doesn't connect back to the family stuff it's is those feel like a weird little tangent we're going to increase the tension and make it hit more because of these high stakes but that the solution just oh it's a third off, or fourth i guess off-screen non-human species attacking them and then they give up. Is it is just like okay? <laughs> yeah, that's a bit too vague. Yeah, right? no, just like the, the, yeah. the oh, he's not an Orion. He's sorry. He's uh, he's not an uh, uh, what is he? He's, he's not an Andorian. He is Orion. Yeah, Andorian. That was the word I was looking for. He's not Andorian. He's Orion. Okay. okay. <laughs> and <laughs> there's there's a great big dot 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 there that really needs something after it. And yeah, yeah it's it, that that's a slight weakness. Ironically, it's one of those things that like only has impact like 50 years later when you know who Orion's Andorians are more. Right. Um, because like yeah, exactly. Because of yeah, other shows and movies fleshing them out. Um, but yeah, like so I I can only imagine audience in the 60s yeah having the reaction like you said like it was just like. Oh, so it's not okay. What? Okay. Especially huh. you missed the menagerie, the only other appearance of Orion's, where it's just like a sexy woman. There's no the whole right. pirate stuff is introduced here immediately and then done away with. Man, it's truly this episode is chock full of nuts in terms of lore, yes. though. It's wild. I mean, we got multiple species. Is this? I I would assume that we've mentioned dilithium prior to now. I mean, just in terms of the workings of the ship. I think uh, so. Yeah, we have. Yeah, yeah. Okay. It's uh, Taste of Armageddon, I think. It, no, not Taste of Armageddon. Uh, oh, yes. Um, what, what oh, what's it oh, the alternative factor. The alternative factor with these steel oh, and oh, gosh. Uh, with the, yeah, yeah, Sorry to drag yeah. your memory back to that. Um, so, yeah, no, we've definitely had mentioned before now. Gotcha. Yeah. But uh, first appearance of the Tellarites and Andorians, I might have said before. Um, right. Both will be main characters on later shows. So, <laughs> like, yeah. It's, I, and, I, go ahead. Sorry. I was just saying, yeah, and it, that's a lot of their initial traits are here. Um, I mean, for the Andorians, it's just like we have cool antenna. The Tellarite's the argumentative thing. That's a fun thing to throw in early, though. Uh, I love the makeup. I mean, yes. it, it went, really, it, the dated elements of the show, and I'm not talking about on a camp level. You know, like my, my engagement with Star Trek is sincere, and I really just love the handmade quality of it, even and sometimes especially when it doesn't look that fantastic. Right. That's the end of my thought. I'm sorry. Okay. Oh, I thought you were say because I think the makeup on the Tallest Andorians, at least relative to the other makeup jobs in the show, they look pretty great. Like, yeah, no, absolutely. It's simple, but it's effective. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, um, maybe maybe slightly more than the uh, the little people in gold face makeup yeah. at the banquet. That's that's not the show's uh, finest moment. No. Um, um, and and you know the, the the Tellerite masks aren't 
fabulous. Um, I mean, but I do like I like the fact that the species are argumentative simply because it's they're never shown as being evil. No. Normally, when we have races that are argumentative, they are by default evil. And the Tellarites aren't. That's just their thing. They aren't aggressive, but that they're, they're not they're not shown to be any less worthwhile than that. And then one of them is also killed. So they have like, at least some degree of sympathy extended to them. If that mask was just a little bit better, then, <laughs> then you know, yeah, we'd be, we'd be in slightly safer territory. But the, the Andorians are fantastic. And what a big Campo queen we have at the interrogation scene as well. When Spock is, uh, when Spock is interrogating the, 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 the fake Andorian, um, that's that's a lovely performance. We don't often see. Like, I, I I I'm the same as you, Joe. I I engage it with Star Trek sincerely, not not just on a campy level. Uh, but that scene is very. Oh, absolutely. I was not to not to dismiss the camp factor, which often adds a glorious layer of spice to things. But you know, it's just when I started watching the show, it wasn't because it was just like, oh, look at this old thing that was so different back then. You know, which is. I, I mean, I think that was kind of how Gen X was engaging with it on some level anyway. I mean, mm, I don't yeah. want to, you know, paint everybody with a broad brush, but just given the, the attitude towards Star Trek when I was growing up was that it was a sort of camp artifact. I mean, TOS specifically. Um, and yeah, I mean, there's plenty of uh, enjoyable camp moments uh, throughout, but also, I mean, the the emotional reality is so present here. And like you said, I mean, obviously in the, the Spock familial stuff, but like the Tellarites are a cool species and we're like figuring out how we do the sort of like, here is a species that has like one majorly defining trait, but doing it in a way that's like a little more nuanced and a little, you know, more even handed. I just want to shout out the actor who played Telev, who was our fake Andorian secretly Orion. Um, William O'Connell who passed a couple weeks ago, January 15th, 24. Yeah, wow. it's uh, R.I.P. to him. He like great job in this episode. And then his other notable credits are minor roles in several different Clint Eastwood movies. It's just like a, a, ner- a nervous barber in High Plains Drifter, a ferryman in The Outlaw Josie Wales, and Every Which Way But Loose. Um, not directed by him, but on his side at Paint Your Wagon yeah, yeah, and yeah. the sequel to Every Which Way But Loose. That's wild. That yeah. <laughs> Yeah, Pale, uh, not the writer. Uh, High Plains Drifter is a wild movie. Oh yeah, I I want to do a deeper dive into the good Eastwood movies. I know there's so many of them, and none of them are good. But I haven't yeah, seen many. It's a, it, it's a it's a mixed bag. I'm not one of those people who uh, yeah. is, he he says he can do no wrong, but he is an interesting filmmaker. Yeah, um, but yeah, that that's I'm um, shout out to William O'Connell who had a solid career. It sounds like. And uh, yeah, does a great job in that interrogation scene. And when Kirk's interrogate him at the very end too, he's like, does a great job like stonewalling him. Yeah, it's it's fantastic. And 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 it's it's one of the things that this episode gets so right is how well everybody is cast. I would say with one small exception, um, but almost everybody is just really well cast in this. And they seem to be um, actors who do really understand exactly where to pitch it because again and we've seen this before we will certainly be seeing it again uh where people do star trek it's so easy to go big to go melodramatic to to you know play to the play to the back roles but everybody here keeps their keeps their places just where they should be and i don't i mean in terms of what's actually on screen um i don't think this is necessarily the best directed episode um but um joseph pevney does a great job with his actors yes um and and everybody as i said with one exception i think is is fantastic here and I'll, i'm i'm gonna i'll be mildly controversial here because i think my one exception is is jane wyatt i don't think she's that great as amanda i think she's good at the beginning when she's when she's just being very relaxed and charming uh with kirk and all that kind of stuff i think she's fine but when she has to do the um well i'm an emotional woman so i'm going to shriek i don't understand oh, yeah. all that kind of stuff she she struggles to pitch that at the right level and that's a bit of a shame i i don't fully disagree but i do think those dramatic moments are so good i wouldn't like single her out as bad like she has such good chemistry with lenard i think like you've Oh, she she has great chemistry with you, Leonard. Yeah, there's no you question. You fully about relationship, and I I agree. Those like, I mean, I'll, I'll can't think of better words. So I'll just say those hysterical scenes are like a little grating. 
Um, but it's, yeah, I, I, the good outweighs the bad from that performance, but I agree it is weaker than our regular cast in Lennard for sure. Um, but yeah, I mean, speaking of that relationship, I really, like, it is just very well developed. Um, I, I was just reading that, like, Nimoy was telling both Lennard and Wyatt that he does a lot of hand work, like, with, I mean, obviously the salute and all that, but, like, that's something how he internalized, like, Vulcan culture as a way to portray it, so they come up with the whole fingers touching thing at the end, which I think is really cute. Yeah, um, yeah. That's a great moment. I think I think one of the reasons we're still on solid ground with her, I mean, I, I, I kind of, I do see what you're saying, uh, but the, the fact that we buy that relationship between her and Sarek, um, which is mm-hmm. something that, like, if that didn't work, if there was, like, some doubt about, you know, or just, like, there's the complexity yeah. of his motivations there, but, like, the, you see a genuine bond between these people, and that, I think, helps underscore everything. Yes. I Like, if that, re- if that marriage didn't make sense, then Spock's whole backstory doesn't make sense. That's what I'm getting at. Yes. Like, yeah. It's, it's so, it's such, like, a crucial, like, precarious Jenga block in the yeah. tower of Spock. And like, <laughs> like I've heard Jane White's other weeks episode, like the fact that that relationship is you so fully buy that it's like, and how they relate to Spock as well. It is just beautiful. It's, yeah. It's, it's, it's a, it's a linchpin. I, I, I like the Jenga, the Jenga tower of Spock metaphor. That's, that's very apt. <laughs> yeah. Um, and yeah, I also just like really like, I just said in the beginning how tender she is and like the scene where she's talking about Spock being bullied. It's a little bit of a clunky exposition dump, but she salvages it by playing it so empathetically and like really relating to Kirk. And yeah, I don't know. It's, it is like a foundational sort of piece, I think. I mean, yeah, it's just, it's just kind of unfortunate. She's up against Mark Lennar giving, as you said, like a series in contention for one of the series best guest stars. And then our regular cast is always so great absolutely he's he's fantastic yeah um this is a completely random thought something that i noticed uh when kirk is uh punching on the communicators he's like actually punching them (laughs) like the ones on the walls like the intercoms and stuff did you guys notice this he has this like yeah he's using yeah he's like really like punching it Which I just found to be a really funny choice. Um, I mean, it didn't take me out or anything, but it's oh, yeah. you know, it's, it's got that swag. It, yeah, exactly. It's in character. It's it's swaggery. It's Kirk, but it just it was just a very funny bit of physical business that gave me a chuckle while I was watching. Uh, I'm also always um, happy for the appearance of uh, Gerald Freed's uh, electric bass. Oh yeah. Uh, whenever the whenever we get the like intrigue electric bass on Star Trek, I'm always like <laughs> yes. <laughs> In general, like I'm such a big fan of all it, it, the music and all the iterations for the most part, with the possible exception of it's been a long road getting from there to here. <laughs> yeah, we don't talk of that that monstrosity. That's that's not something that's not something anybody needs right, to be reminded exactly. of, or indeed have it's, the existence. It's a long of. way from Jerry Goldsmith. We'll say that. <laughs> it really, really is. But you know, you're right. The music is very, very well used here. We get a little bit of recycled music from the uh, during the the uh, ship attacking. Uh, we we get our we get our usual uh, sort of theme there. Um, but for the most part, it is well. The music is well used in this episode, and it, it's an episode which is quite comfortable with the idea that not every scene has to be scored. So we do get like some nice, quiet moments where it's not, you know, being massively underscored yeah, by no, this is how you should right. feel kind of it's orchestration, sparse. and that's that's really impressive. It's sparse. I mean, in general, um, I mean, the music in Amok Time. I mean, obviously, there's the big fight cue. But I noticed like Amok Time has more music than normal the last time I watched it. And uh, this is the same guy, Gerald Freed, who by, I believe also scored a couple of early Stanley Kubrick movies. Um, and uh, yeah, I just in general, like the show's relationship to music and just the franchise's relationship to music is something that's always given me a lot of delight. Yeah. And there's some definitely some great themes here um, for sure. Um. 
I just, I'm sorry, I'll bring this back, Jane Wyatt. I just wanted to comment on, since we didn't talk about it, the Miss Jane Wyatt credit, which I find very charming as well. Because uh, she was, <laughs> yeah, a big actor on, like, stage and, like, was in Father's Knows Best for a long time. Very early sitcom. So, yeah, I guess there's, like, respect there to one of the few TV elders that there are at this point. It's interesting listen, looking down her list of credits because quite often when we have... Um you know, a lot of uh, these kind of like one and done guest stars that come on the show, like a lot of them, a lot of the shows that they've been on mm-hmm. are shows that we're familiar with. So there's 66 Sunset, yeah. Strip, uh, Sunset Strip and there's Gunsmoke and uh, Rawhide and like all these like really familiar kind of 60 shows. But um, other than Father Knows Best, like this is just a whole list of TV shows I have never heard of before. <laughs> there's, there's a lot of stuff there that says, what the heck, what is that? What is what is no minor vices? <laughs> what is House in the River? What is the man who cheated himself? <laughs> I've never heard of these things. <laughs> so yeah, I, I just I wanted to confirm. I it was correct. Uh, Gerald Fried uh, scored uh, the killing, Paths of yes. Glory, uh, Killer's Kiss, Fear and Desire. Oh yeah, it's, it's good scores as well. Yeah, it's incredible. Yep. Um, yeah, I, do we talk about? I know we've talked around about how he gives one of the best performances. Did we talk specifically about Mark Leonard in this yet? I think he is. Like, I mean, he just, like, like our Vulcans in a muck uh, time, he does such a good job locking fully into that pure logic mindset. Oh, and absolutely. Also, I mean, pure dad mindset as well. Yeah. When he's like, yeah, I've had three small heart attacks before now, and yes. I just, I didn't tell you about it because I didn't want to be a bother. Like, <laughs> Oh yeah, it's just it's like that sort of just like stubborn old person thing where you're just like, are you kidding me? <laughs> well, speaking as a stubborn old person, yeah. Um, I find oh, it very I'm, I'm I'm no spring chicken myself, as it turns out. But um, yes, I mean it's just it's a very it just feels very like a f- person who has a frustrating relationship with their perhaps not entirely communicative father. Right. <laughs> it just seems like very recognizable behavior, even though it's coming from ostensibly a space alien. I I think that is what makes this script, and a lot of these Hawaiian scripts really sparkle, is bringing all those human emotions and relationships to these sort of alien settings. Yeah. And like leaning into what's alien about them, like using the Vulcan culture really well. But then there's still that core of like, this is a father-son conflict that you are yep. you know and can recognize on site. Uh, not just father-son, parent-child conflict. Yes, exactly. And in a way, I suppose we are lucky that we have Mark Leonard in this because, you know, obviously he's been in Star Trek before. Right. Um, and and again, a terrific performance in Balance of Terror. Um, but thankfully, you know, the casting directors weren't reluctant about using a face which had been in the show before. So we get I kind of here. love and, sorry, and I kind of love on a television show when um, somebody respawns as a different character. Yes. The same actor. I kind of I mean, just, you know. It's like an almost it's an acknowledgement of the artificiality of the medium to a certain extent, and it's just like, who cares? <laughs> I mean, if it's somebody great like Mark Lennard or like on Deadwood bringing um, Garrett Dillahunt back as different characters, it's just uh, it, I think it shows a lot of respect towards the actor, and it's a good way of just picking somebody who like really gets it and getting the most out of them. Oh yeah, fully agree. Yeah, I complete I completely agree. Yeah, and and just. Just everything that he brings to the role, that very relaxed kind of, there is wisdom there, but he's not just playing like the wise character. He's cold, but he's not completely flat. He's expressive, but he's not kind of breaking out of the Vulcan thing. It's like, it's a, it's, it's a really nuanced. He glides. He's got a dignity. And he's also funny from time to time. It's just, it's just lovely. No, he has this sort of real like grace to him, but while at the same time like an obvious stubbornness that's like the combination of which is like impressive and frustrating at the same time. Yes. And to bring it back to his relationship to Amanda with Amanda, it like again, he does so much selling how that relationship works, why she would like love him, even though he's such like a dick at times. <laughs> Like, I, I, everything about the relationship is summed up by why did you marry her at the time it seemed like a logical thing to do. Like, that is the moment that is, like, so key, and he plays that line so well that it's, and then they do the little finger-touchy thing, which I shouted out earlier. It's just, it is perfect. And it's like, 
again, back to sort of the tolerant point of it would have been so easy to make them villains. It would have been so easy to make Sarek just a bad dad who is a jerk yeah. and Spock hates him. And instead, they have this rift, but he's otherwise like a very like good, am- he's a good ambassador, he's a good husband, he's yep. like friendly to everyone else. It's just, <laughs> yeah, there's this gap between them. It's a very believable character flaw, absolutely. Yeah. Okay, well, yeah, it sounds like we're kind of coming to the end of our discussion now. Um, yeah, good fun all round. But, you know, we have to give it a score. That's what we do. So that's what we're going to do. Um, Kev, what would you like to give this one? I'm going to go with nine. Um, it's like, there are some really great elements here, as I said. And it's just like, it's just not quite the tight package that like a, a Mirror Mirror Doomsday Machine is. To look at my past, the last two tens. But it is still like really great everything else it does so yeah nine feels right to me i'd say um about an 8.5 nine yeah right around there i mean there's just like one or two moments that i think um work a little flatter than they would than one would like them to but i mean on the whole this is just it's such a it's such a major major episode i mean i I gotta give it a nine it's uh you know this is it, it, it hits the heart of the matter when it comes to Spock and uh, for that it alone, you, you really got to give it props. I think I'm going to go with eight and a half. Um, I do really like it. I think the, I think the, the politics plot could be slightly better resolved and, and the whole, Oh, it's the, Orion. yeah, the, the Orion thing. Uh, that, that, that could be handled a bit more gracefully, but um, everything else is just absolute gold. You know, we've got a, a staggering range of really great performances. Uh, it's, it's just a thoroughly entertaining piece. Like the family drama works without just descending into sort of tired soap opera cliches. And yeah, so yeah, I think I'm going to go with eight and a half in this one. Wonderful. Excellent. Good. Right. Well, I think we can leave Journey to Babel there and move on to our recommendations. So, uh, Kev, why don't you go first this week? What would you like to recommend? Sure. Um, so there's an anime I've been watching on Netflix. So it's very accessible. You don't need one of those special Crunchyroll or whatever subscriptions for it. And they're also very accessible in terms of tone and style. I really recommend if you haven't watched any anime, you should check it out. It's called Delicious in Dungeon. And the hook it spends most of the first episode getting to is a sort of typical Dungeons and Dragons like adventuring party starts with them in a dungeon. Their party gets wiped out by a dragon and one of them gets eaten and the rest manage to escape. And they realize a dragon's digestive cycle lasts a month. So they have a month to rescue their friend, uh, the main character's sister. <laughs> but cool idea. it is a cool idea, but they don't have enough times in that month to like go back to the village to round up supplies and get money and food and everything so they have to go immediately back into the dungeon in order to make it down there again. And in order to do to survive, they have to learn how to live in the dungeon and specifically eat in the dungeon, specifically cook and eat other monsters that they encounter and fight down there. Um, <laughs> it's it's a really good premise. And so you have three, or three main characters who are all different points on the scale of this is exciting and new to this is disgusting and awful. <laughs> and... Then they encounter an, a dwarf who, in the English dub, is voiced by of internet fame Song Wan Cho. He's just a comedian I love. And that dwarf is like, he's like an expert at living down there and gives like a lot of life lessons and like cooking lessons too. There's a lot of great cooking sequences in the show that are just uh, fantastic. So the four of them are just dra- traveling down to rescue this person. And it's just, it's very, once you get all, past all that chuff of like the setup, it's like very clean and simple they encounter a new thing they figure out how the resources from that thing can be used to keep them going and then they encounter the next thing and the characters are so strong and interesting and relatable and the situations are fun and fantastic it is and the comedy just hits so hard it is a really lovely show i am a huge fan of it and five episodes in we're recording i think when it comes out there'll be six episodes in. it's an easy catch-up so far and yeah, I really am a fan of it. Uh, Delicious in Dungeon on Netflix. Fantastic. Thank you very much. That sounds excellent. Uh, Jack, what would you like to recommend? Uh, I recently watched uh, Andrea Arnold's movie uh, from 2009, Fish Tank. Uh, previously, I had only seen American Honey. Uh, and I enjoyed it very much. I mean, it's got some difficult subject matter um, uh, in terms of kind of an abuse situation but it is really really well lived in 
which was also the thing that I liked the most about American Honey. I think both of these movies are maybe 20 minutes too long, but at the same time, I would attribute that extra 20 minutes to one of Andrea Arnold's great strengths as a director, which is just showing people sort of hanging out and dicking around and, you know, wasting time and getting drunk, smoking cigarettes, whatever. Um, it's a, it's about a, um, uh, a 15 year old girl uh, living on a council estate in uh, Essex. And um, she has just a, a very, uh, a youngish, uh, irresponsible mother who is uh, dating Michael Fassbender. And Michael Fassbender really announces himself in this movie. He has just a great entrance into it. And it's just a real kind of here comes trouble situation. And they're sort of writing this uncomfortable, inappropriate relationship line. And uh, it makes some really interesting plot decisions, like some stuff that happens in it that was, I thought I knew where it was going. And it kind of zigged and zagged on me in ways that I found to be really satisfying. Um, and the lead performance by uh, uh, Katie Jarvis is really, really, really excellent. Um, I I haven't seen her in much else. Apparently she was on EastEnders, which kind of makes sense. <laughs> um, I mean, I think everybody's been on EastEnders at this point. I think I might have been on it at one stage. <laughs> right. Why do I keep getting checks for this? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, yeah, uh, it's uh, she, Andrea Arnold, I think shoots with, and I mean, I, I fear uh, I fear venturing into a frequently used cliche when people talk about uh, women filmmakers, which is, oh, you know, they're so sensual and intimate and in touch with the physical, natural world, blah, blah, blah. Un- unfortunately, I have to kind of do just that. I mean, I'm not going to generalize, but I think Andrea Arnold specifically is really good at creating um, this very intense sense of intimacy with her camera. Um, there's a couple of uh, moments in the third act that get kind of surreal and jump cutty in a way that I thought was really, really, really cool. Um, and yeah, it was just a really textured, interesting movie that, that, you know, I don't think it's entirely without its flaws, but it just really lets you inhabit a world and a character. And um, it was very successful at doing that. Brilliant. Thank you very much. That sounds fantastic. Yeah. And you can find that on um, Criterion Channel or, um, or Tubi. Ah, to be. Ostensi- I have no idea what that is. My ri- <laughs> no, it's ostensibly my rival because I work for Pluto TV. Mm-hmm. Um, ah. It's another ad-supported free streaming yeah. service. It, I mean, notably, it's it's part of the now Fox Murdoch regime, but if if we, like, I mean, I don't say that as like an insult, you should go there or sort of thing. If we stop watching no, evil no. companies, you wouldn't be able to watch anything, so. Yes. <laughs> But yeah, it's it, that's where the origins of Tubi lie from. But yeah, it is a ad-supported free streaming service. Okay, cool. Lovely. Okay, thank you very much. Um, I'm going to go for um, what I think you'll both agree is a really obscure recommendation. Okay. So I hope this isn't hope this isn't too far out of anybody's uh, wheelhouse. Uh, I'm going to recommend a sitcom called Friends. <laughs> no. <laughs> I, I am going to contextualize this, right? I I grew up in the 90s. I am solidly Gen X. Um, and I never watched a single episode of Friends. Never. I was 50 when I watched my first episode of Friends because uh, I'm, <laughs> I'm punishingly old. Um, and uh, my partner has been kind of encouraging me to watch it because it's a, it's a real, you know, like straightforward feel-good show for him and, and loves it. And it's always been part of his life and blah, blah, blah. And, and it was such a weird thing that I had never seen an episode of friends so we've been watching it kind of uh going through i'm now up at season 10 i've only got about maybe eight or nine episodes left i wow. think at this point uh so just binge the whole lot it's on netflix of course uh, as i'm sure everybody knows and uh i'm just kind of blasted through it and it's been lovely it is just perfect comfort tv there's nothing i can possibly say about it that you know is in any way going to be new or interesting which makes it a really excellent uh recommendation i've just realized um but it's one of those things that it's like it's so easy to be cynical about shows which you know like oh it's the most popular sitcom ever or it's the biggest blah 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 i guess this is also kind of tangentially true about star trek as well you know the original show is such an icon uh i kind of hate using 
the word icon or describing something as iconic. But like, if there's any show that deserves it, the original Star Trek probably falls into that category. Um, and so, like, you know, like we were saying when we were talking about Journey to Babel, it's so easy to think, oh, well, you know, Shatner is just all these pauses. But when you actually sit down and watch it, you go, oh, no, actually, he's a really good actor. He can sometimes do that, and he certainly will when it gets into the movies, but he's like a really good actor, actually. And and it's easy to, to get caught up in the cynicism of it. And I kind of, I must admit, I took a little bit of pride from the fact that I had never seen an episode, which is incredibly kind of elitist and gatekeeper yeah. of me and i'm not i'm not proud of myself for thinking that and having had the opportunity to sit down and watch the show now like i love it it's great of course it bloody is it's friends everyone loves it there's a reason for that like it's not it's not revolutionary it doesn't reinvent the wheel or anything like that but it's just again exactly what we've been saying about journey to babel it's an amazing cast uh you know everybody is pretty much uh you know top-notch career bests it's just it's just a great ensemble it's not perfect there are moments now which you know can make some make us cringe you know a lot of the gay stuff doesn't land very well it's it's passingly transphobic occasionally but 98 percent of it is absolutely great and and you know we shouldn't we shouldn't ignore the issues with it, but we also shouldn't let them dominate the fact that they're they're a comparatively minor part of the show. Um, it's great. I I love it. What a what an absolutely unremarkable recommendation from me. But it's just been <laughs> it's been such a joy to experience, and I kind of like I don't really have anywhere else to kind of express that. So I'm saying it here. So that's my recommendation: the obscure, unheard of sitcom Friends. I mean, I was always a. I, oh, I, I, I haven't seen Friends, so, you know, maybe that does sway me a bit. Because, yeah, I'm just, um, I'm sorry to do this to you, JJ. I'm on the other end of the age spectrum where it's like, when I was, like, past, like, the age of 10 and could watch TV Friends, was, like, on the way out. And also, TiVos were a thing, so I could start being selective about what I watched. So the whole idea of, like, it being on syndication all the time just sort of passed me by. So, yeah, it's, um, yeah, maybe someday I will bite the Friends bullet. It's okay, Kevin. I, I don't hate a... you for being young. <laughs> <laughs> I was always a bit of a Seinfeld partisan, ah. um, and as as such, uh, felt that it was sort of like my my duty to prefer that over Friends. And you know, for for the same sort of silly gatekeepy type stuff that you're talking about, where it's just like, oh, but it's so popular, it's so you know, like up you know, middle of the road, whatever. I gained a new respect for friends under less than ideal circumstances. Which was a couple of years ago, I got sick with a really, really, really bad flu uh, to the point where I panicked and went to the emergency room for no reason. It ended up being, you know, just like it's one of those things where they're like, yeah, I don't know what we what you, what you want us to tell you. You got to write it out. That'll be five hundred dollars. But as you know, as I was lying there in, in the bed for a while, friends was on and I was like, you know what? This is hitting the spot. <laughs> like, I feel absolutely awful and wretched and abject right now. But, you know, Ross is is bumbling around. And I believe it was the episode in which he's attracted to his cousin. Um, but uh, I just, uh, I was like, you know what? Good on you, friends. You are coming to me. You're coming to me in my hour of need. <laughs> and I I gained a newfound respect for it under those less than ideal circumstances. Of course. I I do have two friends facts that just came to mind. I just want to get out really quick. Um the first is I learned recently that Friends was inspired by the Cameron Crow movie singles. Like they it was going to right. be a singles television show. And then Cameron Crowe was like, I don't want my movie, my great movie that everyone definitely remembers for years. <laughs> okay, hold on a second. I like I, I know, but like, especially compared to the Cameron Crowe movies on either side of it, it's not like help it doesn't Yeah, get. that's fair. No, it's it's no great shakes, but I'm Mr. Grunge. And also that was an incredible soundtrack. Oh, yeah. Truly some of the best stuff of the era. Digression. I, I, sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry to count up singles like that. Just in comparison to Friends, when they were like, "Well, let's just make it New York yeah, and yeah. have them and hang out at a coffee shop instead of a grunge scene." It's just oh, and suddenly. But yeah, um, that just that's Cameron Crowe could have been getting a lot. I mean, he's certainly getting checks the rest of his life, anyways. But he could have been getting a lot more. Um, yeah. The other fact is, I just and this might be a recommendation. A few episodes in the line. Um, with Masters of Air starting on Apple, I also started Band of Brothers in the Pacific. And the first episode of Band of Brothers with David Schwimmer as the drill sergeant. It's like, oh my God, he's so good. 
Oh, absolutely. I mean, that is we we talked about that just a little bit earlier this week. And um, is it is it Sobel is his yeah. character? I mean, he is just yeah. I mean, really makes such a strong impression on that show because it is just such a well constructed character to have him be this just total sadist. <laughs> I mean, just a great unexpected use of uh, David Schwimmer. I mean, you know, and he's got kind of a glass jaw as well. It's just like, it's great. I yeah. Like um, and to actually tie this back to what we're talking about, just like how uh, Sarek is a complex character, so is David Schwimmer's hard-ass drill sergeant, who you realize, oh, he's hard-ass because he's not a good soldier in the field. He's only good at doing this, yeah. and he's kind of chip on his shoulder because of that. Ah, great characterization. Great performance. Gave me a lot of respect for him having not seen Friends, so now I should see Friends actually see in this element. Excellent. Lovely. Right. Also, Phoebe is the best friend. Right. Um, <laughs> no. <laughs> so I had to say that. Sorry. It's I do love Lisa Cadrao, um, so I'm not going to, yeah, I'm, I assume so. Yeah, exactly. Right. Good. Uh, let's draw the veil over that. And uh, Jack, do you have anything that you would like to plug? I don't at the moment. Um, I made an appearance uh, on the kev's other podcast kevin rowan kaiser's podcast uh total massacre um had a really good time on that um so if you want to check out the episode that i did on screamers um that's out there and you can look that up um i actually no i do have one thing um i am curating a staff picks row uh this whole month at pluto so for the month of february uh, you can go to the vod section um or you could go to my twitter uh at Jack Mac tonight, J S E K M A C T O N I G H T, um, and there's a link to it. Uh, it's just it's about like sixty seventy titles, um, and yeah, it's just uh, very much as if I had my own like row at the video store. These, these nice. are Jack's picks to make another kind of oblique Seinfeld <laughs> reference. <laughs> Excellent, lovely. Thank you very much. And uh, Kev, would you care to tell people how they can get in touch with us? Of course. Um, we are on Twitter and Blue Sky, uh, at TalkTrek2 on Twitter, at TalkingTrek2 on Blue Sky. Um, I am on Blue Sky at Max Rebo's Roadie, and as mentioned, my other podcast is Total Massacre, which I do with Rowan Kaiser and Carly Veloci. Um, Jack didn't mention this, but he also provides the theme music for Total Massacre. So that was, and that's such a lovely little intro for that podcast. Um, oh, thank yes, you, I, I, it is a bop every time we hear it. Um, JG's writings can be found at jgmcquarry.scott and JG's other podcast is Beatles Stuffology, going through the Beatles track by track with his co-host Andrew Deacon. Please like, rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast, whichever podcatcher you use to help other people find it. And I think that's it. Fantastic. Thank you very much. And Jack, thank you very much for joining us. Well, thank you so much for having me. It was a great time. Uh, you are more than welcome. We will leave Journey to Babel there. And next episode, we are going to have to deal with Friday's Child. And as always, we hope you're going to join us for it. But until then, keep talking. <laughs>